Did the screen turn off? Okay. Okay. This is the hard time because we've all just had nice meals and we're going to try to stay awake. I will not take offense if your eyelids start going and you start doing those little jerky things that happen when you're falling asleep. It happens. If you stand up to keep yourself awake, I'm okay with that. If you fall asleep in your sleep, it's okay. The reality is that this is always a rough time of the day uh, for teaching. So we're going to jump in. Okay, I talked about fire hoses, and I'm a bit of one, and I'm going to be one for the next two classes. That was my shortest class. So I got a bit of material to cover in these next two, all right? So I'm just warning you. So this section is about all of those other areas of intimacy. So we did verbal and emotional this morning. And had you all have fights during lunch. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and so people ask me, what do we do with the rest of it? Well, go find those four people and go spend some time together this week and, and finish, right? Uh, the reality is it really might have brought up stuff. And you, I would highly recommend you do just what we did this morning um, and more extensively. So we're going to talk about relational, spiritual, affection, and sensual intimacy in this chunk. And then the last chunk on sexual intimacy. So let's start with this. Intimacy in our marriages is rooted and surrounded by our intimacy with God. God knows us intimately. He created our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. He knows when we lay down. His hand is on us. Actually, if you study... Um, the warmth and kindness and affection of Jesus. Notice how many times he touches people, right? That's how God is. God, his hand is on us. Jesus appears to John in Revelations, and the first thing he does as he's talking is put his hand on John. God has his hand on us. God is affectionate. Jesus was affectionate. He created our inmost being. Like, <laughs> you were still in your mom's womb, and he's, right? Your frame was not hidden from him in that place, in that secret place. His eyes saw your unformed body. This really helps me because I am, um, we've all gone through tough things. You might be going through tough things right now. And it really amazes me when I stop and think, God actually knew everything about what I'm going through. David says, my days are in your hands. God knew and knows everything before it happened about me. That's reassuring to me. He saw my unformed body. He knew me before I became what I am, right? Uh, how does he address us? How does he talk about us? It says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I have four kids, right? And like, it's still vivid to this day, holding that little baby, each one of them in my arms, and just being like, oh my gosh, you're mine. You were just in my belly, and now you're in my arms. Now they're all grown, those grown bodies, you see, and I I just look at them and I go, oh, like, that, you are mine, <laughs> to that little baby. That's how God feels about 
me and you. He looks at you and goes, she's mine. He's mine. The words he uses are beloved. These are things he calls you. Yeah. Holds us by our hand. I literally, just tell you the truth, um, as God and I were walking here this morning, coming down to uh, prepare for this morning, I put my hand out like this and I walked with him. <laughs> he and I held hands oh, we, as we came down this morning. <laughs> just a new practice I'm doing, really practicing being with God in a very kind of physical Amen. sense. It just helps me. Amen. <laughs> it's kind of weird, <laughs> but it helps me. Um, we're engraved on his palm. He carries in his, as in his arms, but not just in his arms, like <sighs> close to his heart. This, he's carrying us in his arms close to his heart. So I actually, from when I was a brand new Christian till now, there's something about knowing how he feels about me that has been helpful to my soul. So starting years ago, I, in the back of my Bible, would just write down when a, uh, a scripture would hit me about how he felt about me, and I just kept that through the years. Um, and so that list is now a couple pages long, one scripture, if you're interested in that, <laughs> yeah, we've already had takers on that, you can send me an email, at, so my address is, and you can send me an email for anything, you can send me, ask me a question, Jennifer Condon, my name, at yahoo.com, and if you want that list, I'm happy to give you it, it's my how God feels about me list, and it's funny because just recently, like many times I have through the years, I was just praying through the whole thing, it's just... I need to hear it a lot, how he feels. This is just a taste. We are created to be intimately connected with God, first and foremost. And so our marital intimacy is in the midst of that. It is a reflection of this. That's what God's intent is. So... What about in the field I work in? We actually, I told you we study empathy, we study intimacy. I actually did my own study. I'm going to show you the results of it. But um, there are technical definitions of what is it that we're talking about today? What is intimacy? This is one of the researchers' definitions. Makes sense. Sharing something meaningful, personal, private, verbally or non-verbally, like when you do even non-verbal ones like sharing humor, nicknames, routine affection, you know how you just kind of understand, you just, mm -hmm, you don't even have to say anything, it was tacit understanding. Yeah. So, intimacy. The sharing, very simple, of joys, hurts, and fears. That's a good one. This is my favorite. The perception that one is fully known, deeply and authentically, on the one hand, and loved, accepted, respected, and cared for on the other. You know all my junk, and you still like me. Like, that's a good definition of intimacy, right? This is from my research, I, um, so before I go over it. Couples um, wrote before they did therapy with me. They all came to do a sex therapy research study. And um, part of the assessments was they would write down how they defined intimacy. Now, all of these couples who wrote these definitions I'm going to share with you, their scores for marital intimacy were in the danger zone, all of them, right? So they weren't experiencing what they were defining. Those scores at the end of treatment were out the roof, what you call two standard deviations. So they, uh, in research, a 0.2 is a small change, 0.5 is a medium, 0.7 is a large change, and my clients were at a 2.1. Wow. So what you call two standard deviations, like, like, right? Um, what that means is people can get remarkably better. They can. I think we get our definition of intimacy from God. It does help 
to have some of these people who are doing this profession and how would they define intimacy kind of things. Well, this is the definitions from my clients. They, it's seven different, seven different categories. One was the idea of safe and close, that I feel understood, feel safe. The other was verbal intimacy, which we just practiced this morning, right? Vulnerability, sharing, with no limits. These are their words, by the way, they're exact words from their definitions. Um, emotional intimacy, which is overlaps into all the things we're doing today, where you can share specific feelings, thoughts and feelings. And then relational intimacy, which is the friendship part. We're gonna tap on each of these, barely tap on them today in this section. But this is the fun, the friendship, dating, spending time alone together, enjoying each other's company. By the way, again, these are their words, laughing together, pleasing each other. The word together was used over and over and over. So this is intimacy. Physical intimacy, uh, they defined it as smiling, touching, hugging, texting, calling, dating, kissing, holding hands, cuddling. Spiritual intimacy, everybody in the study were religious and Christian in belief. About a third of them were disciples. Um, Self-sacrifice, one flesh, grace, temptation. And then this big one, that intimacy is exclusive. We are a one and only, and it's mutual. I worked with a couple where they experienced the opposite of that in some really painful ways. Um, they had gone through a lot of trouble. There had been an affair. Um, things seemed to be getting better. They saw it, came to see me. They were 40-some years married. At about the 30-ish year spot, they were working through things and getting to a better place. And he bought her uh, chocolate roses for uh, Valentine's, you know, wrapped in the red. And she was just, like, so encouraged. She didn't usually do things like that. Um, she's going through the receipts and financially doing things and realizes he actually bought two sets. And the other was a guy that he had um, been in the military with, whose wife, whose um, the wife, uh, the husband had died, the friend had died. So he felt this was her first Valentine's, he sent her another, sounds really good, he felt for her. They didn't have a relationship, he sent her a set. And so the wife is like, the exclusivity got damaged, even in something that you can go. So he and I had to spend a few sessions together going, let's talk about why that was so damaging. Not only did it just happen in a regular relationship, but in, but in a relationship that was trying to repair. Right, so exclusivity and that it's a mutual thing is, is significant. And that was part of their definition of intimacy. So why is it important? So we do, uniquely as believers in Jesus, we have the opportunity to have a deeper understanding of God's loving heart. Those who are married in God's family, they get that deeper opportunity to know God's heart through being deeply and erotically bonded with your spouse. So we can actually, and I think parenthood also does that, in our deep, intimate relationships, we have the opportunity to then understand the heart of God in an even deeper way, You very uniquely. So there's a book, Kelly wrote a book, um, on the seven levels of MC, and I just like how he kind of divides it up, that people have intimacies with me in an airport, you know, if you ever sat next to somebody and you share something you would never share with someone, like something kind of vulnerable. So there's some intimacy, even with total strangers, that will happen. But also there's forms of intimacy that are just on that kind of simpler level. 
where you're just sharing facts, you know, what do you do for work, maybe sharing some opinions about that last ball game <laughs> or about that company, you know, maybe sharing um, those tough areas. But then these lower four areas, sharing hopes and dreams, sharing feeling, sharing fears, failures, weaknesses, sharing needs. This is the dangerous stuff. So we actually know from research, only 15% um, of couples do the lower four. Yeah. The majority of the couples are up in the top three. That might be, you might be seeing that and go, well, shoot. That's kind of seeming like a little bit like us. So that's why we're going to talk about it today. How do we go from this to this? It's risky and dangerous to do the lower four. Because they might get used against you. Somebody might go, uh, when you share. I mean, it's, it's dangerous. It's risky to vulnerably share at these levels. Why, why even do it then? Well, we actually know that it makes a difference for health. So here's the stat, 15%. This is a, an older research study, but they actually, the recent research has the same. Meaning about 15% of people feel it most of the time, and there's an additional 25% that feel it during difficult times of illness or during special times of weddings, things like that. So that's 40% are sometimes, 50% are most of the time. But that makes 60% that are not at all, and even 85% that are only at times, right? So why is it important? We actually know from research that intimacy serves as a buffer against all the stresses on your body. Self-concealment, so that lack of vulnerability, actually is associated with poor health. All right? So we need to have places where we can be intimate. We actually know from the research on um, first responders, so this would be those in the military, those who are firefighters and drive, you know, paramedics, doctors and nurses, so that actually their mental hmm. health and their physical well-being is dramatically affected by whether they have an intimate relationship. Somebody that they can really be true and vulnerable with, right? They huh. do better if, which that just makes sense for anybody, but especially people under high stress, first responder type trauma jobs, right? Um, intimacy literally makes a difference in all areas. So it makes a difference in yours, right? Your mental health and your well-being are better if you have good intimacy, not just with your partner, with God, with others, right? But again, there's risks. You might feel exposed when you do bury yourself to those needs and dreams and weaknesses. Your spouse might just like not even be there for you. You might expose something rather vulnerable and then they, they aren't there. Or they, we talked about this earlier, use it against you. Or you might be afraid of losing control. Like if you share how you're really feeling, you might start sobbing or get angry. You might lose control. You, you might be afraid of your own anger is one that people fear. I might get really curious so I don't say anything, right? Um, or you might be like, I ain't asking him. I'm not asking her nothing because, oh my gosh, you know what's going to come towards me? So there might be like, what could come, if I try to be vulnerable with my partner, I might get flooded by their stuff. And then either it's going to be destructive towards me or it's going to make me feel like I have to do something, I have to sacrifice myself, I have to agree. Like 
oh, what's it going to mean? So actually, I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid uh, even going in those directions. So there are risks, including sexual. Steve Martin, you know that look that women get when they want to have sex? Me neither. Um, <laughs> so this goes all the way to sexual intimacy, right? From the kind of intimacy we practiced earlier to sexual intimacy. <laughs> what about the friendship? Remember my lover, my friend from Song of Solomon? So there's different areas when I'm working with couples that I work with on their relational intimacy. And one is the face-to-face, -face, which is what we practiced earlier. This is the, um, <laughs> it says last month. That was for a different group. <laughs> I teach them once a month. Um, last, yesterday, this morning. Face-to-face, um, -face. much better to do it this way. And then the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder is, the, is the adventuring together. This is the have a good time. You can actually do a, a really cool, fun job of exploring. If you feel like this is a weakness for you, go type into Google recreational companionship inventory. It's from his needs, her needs. Have you done that? Which I love and don't love Yarding. that work. But that particular one is so helpful. And you literally take some time to rate about 100 different activities, either minus three to plus three, somewhere in there, and then you find out if you have any fives and sixes, and then you find a way to start putting those things into practice. Super, super simple and practical. If you need to find ways to, because people will say, oh, we're exact opposites. We have nothing in common. We can't find anything good to do together. Actually, I'll bet you might have at least a zero, <laughs> meaning it's not a negative three. It's something you're both sort of a little bit interested in that you can figure out. Most people have at least a three or a four out of this, so you can learn something new to do together that would be encouraging. Um, adventuring together is just so vital. I'm like, I live in San Diego, so I'm like, so it doesn't have to be get all dressed up, spend a lot of money, go on a date. It can be grab a burrito and go for a walk on the beach. Like inexpensive, but someone plans it, someone thinks about it. And so I actually have my couples take turns. It is one of my assignments that I give them that he plans the date one week and she plans the date another week. And then um, I give them specific things to do to communicate about that time um, together. So it is dates and romance are vital, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And then, one of the big things I work on is the small intimacies that happen at home. So friendship isn't just going out and adventuring together. It's also the small little things, like um, making your spouse a cup of coffee, giving them a foot rub, you know, going on a walk around the neighborhood. Small little thoughtful things. So um, the exercise I have couples do is to buy, uh, is to have two coffee cups, and then they each write down two things on a small slip of paper that they would like their spouse to do. Small, small, small things, like that take five, 10 minutes, maybe 15, and they put those two little requests in their coffee cup, they each do, and then that following week, I have them doing each week, that following week they pull out the little slip of paper and they go do what their spouse wrote on that little piece of paper. And um, I had one couple who, they did the research study with me, and then I, when my couples are finished with therapy, I do a three-month, six-month, one-year follow-up. So this couple, at their one-year follow-up, um, said, yeah, we have to show you something. They had bought mugs with their names on it, and they had continued to do this exercise every week for the whole year since we had ended therapy. Awesome. And I was like, y'all are awesome. So one of the biggest things that came out of 
in a clump working with so many people at once. This is how I work clinically since then, but watching 32 couples go through it at once was really learning for me is that one of the biggest things they said, which is so vital, was it was the intentionality. Mm. You kept Jennifer saying purposeful, intentional. To build our relationship intimacy, this is the friendship part. We often don't talk about the friendship part. Gottman, who's a researcher out of Seattle, he does a great job of emphasizing friendship, which is rare to even the field of therapy. If we don't nurture our friendship, our friendship's gonna die on the vine. We have to purposefully and intentionally add pieces to it. So, um, those are things I would recommend. You can go home this week and pull out two coffee cups and start doing it. I have to tell you, just by my saying this, you're all gonna have an argument about that at home because we're gonna have problems with the rules. What exactly did she say? <laughs> um, and, and I put them in there. This is what, then they come into my office and it's, okay, I'm just gonna be honest. It's usually the wife going, he hasn't pulled out any of them, you know? And he's like, so I was going to, and then I was like, you know, <laughs> when you start to make these small changes, like even doing the ungame, it will bring up stuff. So be patient, be, be gracious, get help, but these small changes can make a huge difference. It was so funny. The ungame and the cards, and my cards, I created those cards for my research study, actually. That's what's in the back. And, um, um, I did it because I wanted to find a way to help couples talk about their relationship every day for just five minutes. And if you've ever done, um, his attorneys, they say you should talk for an hour. Good luck. Um, oh, I was hour, like, every day? I'm a pretty good communicator. I can't even imagine doing a whole hour. I actually tell my couples, so the Louis and us, the John and Karen Louis, I was teaching at their conference in Singapore on I Choose Us, and they do that, you know, you should talk for an hour, and so they heard me say five minutes, and they're like, Jennifer, I'm like, I don't know about you, but most people are so crazy busy, it's awesome if I can get them five minutes. And I actually have my couples put a timer on it. You may not go past. Like Mark actually said, it led to further conversations, so what I have people do is, whether they do the cup exercise or whether they do the cards, that you set the timer and all you do is share, um, reflect, share, reflect. That five minutes is up, you put the box back together and then you can have those longer conversations after the lid is on the box. If it, and then some nights it won't. Why? Because if you think you're gonna be in a 20 minute conversation every night, you're probably not gonna do it as often. So small, small intimacies. That's why what you put in that cup needs to take five minutes. Rub your spouse's feet or, you know, sit on the Not porch swing and look at the stars mm -hmm. for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Small intimacy. So start small, start, start doable. Um, yeah, so do the recreational companionship in inventory and do the cup exercise. Yeah. Wait, 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 what's wrong? I'm confused. <laughs> you know, she's like, we're going to have such a romantic time. This is going to be lovely. He's doing a cherry bomb. I actually was sharing this at a uh, pretty conservative church not, uh, in our area, not in our fellowship. And the minister said, can you cover up his butt in that slide? I was like, come on! 
I, I just said I'll just take the slide out. Thank you very much. We, uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, just as a joke there. So we're gonna practice something right now. Um, these are um, what I do with every couple I see. They're called prompt and reflection exercises. I wrote these. Um, they're all in my book, but we're just gonna practice two of them today. This is one. So what you're gonna do, you've already practiced reflection, right? So we're gonna do this, and if your spouse is not here, you just write them out and you can share them with them later, all right? So what you're gonna do is decide who goes first, just like we did, you're gonna stay right where you are, and you're gonna decide who goes first, and whoever goes first says, I feel close to you when? And just share that, just finish the sentence, and the other one says, I feel close to you when? I feel when. close to you when? So share, reflect, share, reflect, then you do the next one. I really enjoy I, doing with you. Share, reflect, share, reflect. Um, we're gonna skip number three because I don't want to cause too many arguments today. It's hard for me to feel close to you when, but I want you to do these. Go ahead and share that part. And then just do um, the number five. So one, two, and five is what we're gonna do right now. And five is something you've done that made me feel cherished once. And that can be yesterday, last week, or 10 years ago, all right? So we're just going to do those three, one, two, and five, and it's share, reflect, share, reflect, all right? Decide right now who's gonna go first. One, two, five. And then I, what I want you to do actually, um, I'm not gonna make you move your chairs, but I'm gonna act like you are. So what I mean is, and if you can move your chairs, do. And the, what I direct my, even online, I'm working with my couples online now, and I tell the husband, get two separate chairs, and he sits right angle. She comes in and she tucks her knees until they're touching his chair, and they're looking at each other holding hands. So get as close to that as you can, how you're sitting. Okay, so go ahead and sit comfortably. Facing each other, holding hands, and you're going to actually share these and do your best to look in your spouse's eyes as you share. All right? So, on your marks. Never that movie. Set. Go. I feel close to you when. I said, like, we're literally. I feel close to you when you are physically close to These are not about sex, by the way. I feel like, dang it, my answer's gone. I feel close to you when we can be physically close while doing something. For example, I feel close to you when we can sit on the couch and you sit between my legs and we can watch TV. Uh, I feel close to you when we get to snuggle and talk like early in the morning or... We don't talk in the morning. We snuggle. We don't talk. Well, before we woke up so early, we used mm. to talk in the morning. Mm. Like in the morning, or or like my poor bed, or mm. you know, when I lay on your chest and we can just snuggle close. Mm. I really enjoy doing everything. 
ครับผมเชิญบ้างSo you can have more room.
have a, uh, I didn't know what the date was going to be, mm-hmm. but I brought a set of, uh, of cordless microphones. If you had an input uh, that you wanted to maybe use. I think we've got it set. I don't want to change anything okay. out now. Okay. I appreciate it. Okay. Seriously, no like, seriously I okay, appreciate no it. I just don't want to mess with it.
try that little teeny step, right, to without kids running around. I actually had one couple, yeah, we're going to do it like after dinner, and they had kids, you know, where the kids are just, you know, playing and before they go to bed, and I was like, hmm, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so finding time that's uninterrupted has to be pretty intentional. Yep. Yeah. Who's bonding? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes we'll use humor to kind of avoid deeper things, and so to go here. So if you'll remember, oh, we're going to do another one later. These are the, remember the seven levels of intimacy? This is going to that deeper level. but they want to talk forever. I'd like to do the gardening, but they want to do it forever. So, I, I do like to have sex, but they want to do it forever. <laughs> is that we don't have those conversations. I actually have couples practice how to hug. Because they haven't shown each other preference for arms, but even length, or even firmness, right? And so, yes, this, this is about just fun and friendship or closeness. And yet, we often haven't had those conversations. Yeah, who else? Yeah. The eye contact. Mm. Mm. I love this man. And I'm, I'm looking in his eyes, helped me go. Yeah, yeah. And so my goal with couples that don't initially have that feeling when they look at each other <laughs> is to get them to that place. So that and so by the time so this is one of my this is like my my second or third prompting reflection that I do with couples. And by the time they're done with me, we've done it like ten times. And by the tenth one, they are almost no, they're always at that spot. So some of us have to take time to get there, but that is Goal. So you're already there. You can leave now. You can leave. <laughs> 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 you're like, come on, give me something more here. Can we go deeper? Okay, so I'm so glad you said that. So I'm working with a couple right now. Um, they're in major disconnect. Um, he's working on the basement never comes up to talk, and they don't do anything together, and it's been like that way for years, right? And so I give them the ungame to do a couple of weeks ago, and she's furious every time they do it, because she's like, can you give me more here? You read the card, and you give some, like, shallow answer. Um, uh, in general, what I guide couples through at that point is be aware that we're just starting. This is just the beginning of building a skill. 
And what generally happens from a couple I work with is over time, that skill to go deeper builds. And so, um, like this, I can't tell you the number of couples I work with where they are expecting the onion to fix their marriage. And I'm like, it's a part, it's a step in that direction, right? So these are starts, but I would pay attention to the fact that there's usually, so husband here in this part, there's usually this depth of longing where someone has for those deeper, richer conversations. And I'd say that's where you're aiming for, and that's a good place to aim. So I'm going to go on here. Um, okay, to intimacy, overall intimacy. I'm going to be talking about challenges to all forms of intimacy, including sexual intimacy. Because this all sounds great and good, Jennifer, thank you very much, but there, we have a lot of stuff in our marriage that gets in the way of getting close in our friendship, in our, right? different areas. What are those? Sometimes, specific to sexual intimacy, there's all kinds of barriers from your background, either growing up or in your marriage, betrayals that have happened in your marriage. So, to those for whom sexual experience has resulted in unholy pain, Christ says, I understand well your experience. I hear the cry of the needy, afflicted, and broken. Come to me. I am your refuge. I am safe. I will remake what is broken. I will give you reason to trust and then to love. I will remake your joy. Those are directly taken straight out of Psalm 10, It's a compilation of four scriptures. This, by the way, is a, is a quote out of the book Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, which I'll talk about more later. Um, I, mm. This is just an important mm. chunk. No. Some of the yeah. things around intimacy, and specifically sexual intimacy as well, are painful due to things that have either happened in your marriage, or that have happened in your upbringing, or that have happened between you and other people. And we, ha we do have a promise from God that although we're working on this today, you might be in a process and a journey. And that process and journey can bring up a lot of pain. And that God's promise is, I hear your pain. And I can make things new. I can remake the joy in your marriage. There might be some injuries or sin from the past. This is like if you've been sexually molested or physically abused, violated in some way, you were neglected as a child, or all of those things have happened in your marriage. Isaiah 61 says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. You may have engaged in things in your background, especially if it's sexually. If you were, I had a couple I was working with, he had a really long background in sexual addiction um, before they got married. And his shame was really a peace between them, right? So you might, or you might have engaged with people in ways sexually that really brings up a lot of shame. Things that happened to you or that you did. And God's promises, it might have brought broken things into your life. I bind up the brokenhearted. You might be brokenhearted because of what was done to you, or you might be broken because of things you've been involved in. And his promise is, I can proclaim freedom. Yeah for captives and release from darkness. So both damage done to us and things we've done. His promise is with those injuries from the past, I 
and the master remaker, right? If there's been, and so I just, we're gonna be talking very specifically about sex um, in uh, an hour or so. And it's a difficult one for some people if there's been any betrayals in their background. So I wanna hit that now in this section. Um, if there's been pornography or affairs, any kind of betrayals, even emotional, and it might, that's gonna be a certain percentage of you in this room. Pornography, in our fellowship, we did a questionnaire of the leaders in our fellowship in Panama about four years ago. And it's indicative of what's happening within our fellowship. We, the, the percentage of, of individuals doing pornography for men is at about 90%, and for women has risen from about 20 to about 50. That's remarkably risen because of the access to the internet. So people are doing that and it's betraying, right? But then there's other many forms. If that's happened in your background, that's gonna be a little hard to keep talking about the things that we're talking about, especially the sexual part. If there's been masturbation or pornography, there's gonna be huge impacts. So personally, there's gonna be an impact, meaning how you view yourself, how you feel about you. So this is where shame comes in. And people ask me all the time, I, actually yesterday with a client we talked about, uh, did his masturbation pornography practices since he was young affect his sexual arousal patterns? Meaning, what makes him aroused? Yes, it can. It doesn't for everybody, but it can and does. Um, so it can have that personal impact. It can also have a spiritual impact. I mean, you're saying sinning against God, so it can damage you and God um, and make you feel like you can't come to God. Sexual sin, we tend to think sexual sin is the bigger sin, and actually, in God's eyes, it's sin, like lying. And yet, it's harder to come to God. So picture Jesus. So God wrote, when it comes to um, sin, uh, God said, you know, this, this woman, this man, they have sex and they commit adultery. Take him outside the town and stone them. That God walked on the stage in John 8. And a woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. And the God who wrote that scripture is on stage and says, does anyone condemn you? Neither do I. And he's still honest with her and you believe your life of sin. So he's honest, but look at that compassion. We need to have that same response to anyone caught in sexual sin. This response of Jesus, that kind of, that kind of response. Yes, Paul said it and it's true. Sexual sin has a larger impact. It does. And so working with couples on that impact or an individual due to their background or people that sinned against them. It has an impact. And so when it's your own marriage where that impact happens and the healing needs to occur, it impacts the individual and the couple. So that's the relational impact. Um, we're going to go into that a little bit more. So how do you deal with those challenges? If there's been an affair, um, one thing to pay attention to is that the process of discovery um, and disclosure meaning you just find it, or the partner shares it. Either way can be very traumatizing. And I had one couple, they became Christians in their 50s. Uh, they came to see me, they were five years into being disciples, and he had an affair when they were younger, done lots of pornography. They became Christians, but all that stuff actually kind of remained there. The trauma of it remained there. And she remembered finding this little slip of paper, he had written out a poem for the woman he had an affair with, and she found a line of it. She said, I can still remember what I was wearing, what, the, what some smells in the room, I can just, 
It's, a, it's PTSD. It literally is PTSD. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. We think of it in association with um, you know, war. But actually, now we know um, that the, the more accurate term for the rest of us who didn't go to war is complex PTSD. <coughs> the United States hasn't picked up that definition yet, but the rest of the world, on the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, calls it a real thing, complex PTSD. What that is, is a child who's been harmed by their parents or caregivers, so it's relational PTSD. Somebody that's supposed to protect me and didn't. So that happens in marriages. You're supposed to love me and protect me. And so my couples, um, a couple who um, she found out he was having was having sex with someone when she was giving birth to their child. So those kinds of what we call attachment injuries are big ones, and they happen with in our own marriages. So how do you heal those wounds, right? Carefully, step by step, dealing with that kind of challenge, and at what point do you re-engage sexually? Um, what I generally do is walk through what an attachment injury is. So your parents were supposed to take care of you. You're supposed to have a what you call a secure attachment, but then they break that attachment when they harm you, right? And that impacts life. That's actually what happens in marriage. We're supposed to have this safe attachment, and then you injure that attachment by that betrayal. And it can be an emotional affair that doesn't become physical. It can be a relationship with somebody online. It can be a lot of different types. And so the, the damage that happens is to the attachment bond of the marriage. And it is, so again, CPTSD, it is a trauma. So it's what you now will hear about as far as betrayal trauma. It's got a name, it's got research on it that's valid. And what happens in those kinds is that feeling of abandonment, rejection. I had a husband who his wife had been in an affair with a guy years ago, then he just, I don't know how he found out, he saw that she had FaceTimed him. His, this past affair guy, his, the mother had died, and she sent a note just saying, I'm sorry about your mom, and he just, it was like he was back to that day that it happened. It felt like it had just happened. That's actually, so trauma stays in the body. And so when it gets triggered, it literally, this is, picture the guy, coming back from war, the door slams, and he's on the battlefield in his mind. It takes him back to the trauma. That's what happens with betrayal traumas. You go back to the incident. Even if you're not specifically picturing the incident, your body is going back. And so the bummer is, um, you'll have a partner who uh, picks up their phone, and the spouse gets flooded with memories of what they found on their phone and says, hey, I just got, I'm just watching you on your phone and I'm really struggling. And then you've got often a partner going, oh my gosh, when are you gonna let me out of the doghouse? Really, still, you're not forgiving me? How long am I gonna be in trouble for this? So I was sharing this because a couple that I was meeting with in Singapore, um, he, he had had pornography use, he had not looked at anything for two years, and they said it's still causing problems. And then I shared what I just did to you about often this is what happens. And he looks at her and she looks at him and they look back at me and they're like, that was our conversation last night. This 
she's sharing the trauma, he doesn't have a great response. And I said, you know, the goal would be then having what I would call a healing response, a healing conversation, because it's a trauma. We call it you're not forgiving. And it's not just, say, the spouse saying it to the spouse. Often, honestly, within our fellowships, we're saying it to each other. We've got sisters helping sisters who are saying, sister, you, need to, you just need to forgive. And we're not realizing, oh, wait, 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 slow down. That person just had a trauma response. Their body got flooded. Now, maybe, you know, the Bible says, do not sin in your anger. So maybe in our trauma, we might do and say things that seem like crazy and completely out of control. But if we would have a healing, compassionate response to that trauma, we could have a whole different conversation. So what I walk couples through is the ability for them, the partner, to say, ah, when I picked up my phone, it brought everything back that I did. And I did all that. So it makes sense for me that you would have that feeling and that response. I am, I am so sorry that what I did then comes up for you now. And I, I'm really glad you're sharing it with me. I want you to share it with me whenever it comes up. What can I, what, what, what do you need? What can I do? Do you just need me to listen? Do you need my arm around you? Do you need a hug? Do you need to see what's on my phone? Can you imagine? What would happen if that's what happens at each betrayal conversation? Trauma's a real thing, and it gets triggered. You're watching a movie and it comes up. You go to a wedding and it comes up. When you've had this attachment injury, it's going to come up. So if you are the betrayer, perhaps take some time. I have a whole chapter on this in the book. You can go listen on a podcast. I'm only giving you a taste of it today. Spend some time learning how to have that conversation. There's a lot of other pieces to it, but that's the beginning taste. You can have, you can actually, after you have a painful conversation like that, you can actually end up closer instead of more divided. So I call it conflict that creates connection. <laughs> you can have conflict even about huge painful issues that draws you close together. So when the trust has been broken, let me just give you some input. You might be right in the middle of it. You have to understand that the betrayal is unique when it happens in marriage. Psalm 55, David says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If it was just anybody, I could handle it. But it's you, my close companion, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. It's not just anybody, it's you. Now this can be of any deep, intimate relationship. This might describe some of your relationships within the fellowship here. Somebody you walked in sweet fellowship with and they did some things that felt really painful. So it's amplified when the person who's done that damage is the person you go home with, you eat with, and you might have sex with, right? So this kind of healing, the, one of the important pieces is, is really calling it what it is, that it is a trauma, understanding the betrayal is huge. And then how do you rebuild trust? Titus 2 says, show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I do work with, when I have a betraying partner, they need to be fully open and say, you know, here, look at my phone. So this is a much deeper conversation to have. 
by that is a big piece that I give couples is 100% openness. And how do you do that so that the person that's um, answering questions, so if the wife is the one who's betrayed, if the husband is the one who's betrayed, that the questions they might be asking about it and the openness that they're asking doesn't end up damaging them. In other words, if you sometimes people ask too, the kind of questions like, well, where were you? Um, what were they wearing? Like those kinds of leave pictures in your mind questions. What sites were you on? Probably not helpful. But how are you doing and are you talking to the sisters? Are you talking to the brothers? Is huge. So rebuilding trust often gets skipped. We pat each other on the shoulder. Good job, you forgave. Good job, you forgave. And we skip the process of rebuilding from a betrayal. Proverbs 13, 17, a trustworthy envoy brings healing. So yes, trust is a huge piece. People, I, I've had partners say in my office, why don't you trust me? I'm like, well, you know, you actually have to rebuild it. And it takes sometimes, for most couples, a couple of years when there's been a significant betrayal. And we kind of rush it on. I had one, they were disciples. They were in my office about a month ago. And they said, um, we shared what happened, and it was the last time we talked about it with the couple that was in their lives, so say, discipling them. We brought it up in a, in a talk all together, and that was the last conversation anybody ever had with me about it. Mm. Let's not do that anymore. <laughs> like, let's build the process of, um, of coming through those betrayals. So when it happens, those small building blocks, those... Um, those, the, especially if the, if the betrayal is ongoing and there's lots of lies and deceit, often what couples share with me is that it's not the actual betrayal that was painful, it was the deceit attached to it. And so, instead of saying, brother, sister, you need to forgive and calling it a record of wrongs, how about we call it a trauma response and respond with humility? Mm-hmm. Reflect, validate, own, express remorse and gratitude, and then say, what do you need from me? All right? So, what are some of the other challenges? That was a big one, right? Um, There might be other non-sexual sins in the bedroom. Selfishness, irritation, um, uh, you know, selfishness (laughs) is a big one. Um, Anger, those, they clutter the bedroom. What about if you've got relational patterns between you that are highly problematic? If someone, this is common, where they're um, engaging in thinking about someone else uh, while they're with their partner, sometimes to get aroused because they're concerned about their arousal system, sometimes because those flash in their mind because they're reading too many novels or watching too much stuff. So fantasy partners will pop into the mind. Satan makes immorality look really good. Think about, okay, Titanic, the scene in Titanic that's just, um, so aging myself here, but they're they're engaging sexually inside this like carriage and you see the hand up against the window and the windows are all steamy and we're all like, oh, that's so... They are not married and they're committing sexual morality and we watch that scene and we go, wow. That's what Hollywood does. It makes Satan does. Makes the morality look good. So we need to be aware of how we're buying into that message of what Satan does with that, whether they're Bond movies or Game of Thrones. Um, and then, of course, if somebody's involved in um, sharing, you know, uh, emotionally at work and they end up in an emotional relationship with someone at work. So all of those things can be challenges to the marriage. 
um, others can be that honestly, especially when it comes to sexuality, that I'm, bar- I'm embarrassed. I don't, I, my, I don't feel good about my body. Sex is embarrassing. I like the whole sexual thing. Yeah, no. So embarrassment. Um, your spouse's sin. What about just the physical reality? Like time. When does? When do you figure out the time to be together when life is so full? If you are getting older and you're going through menopause, you're taking various medications, you do have body image issues, either due to surgeries you've had, due to weight gain, due to you've just had them. I, I taught in Sweden. <laughs> I have to tell you, I did this merit, this uh, women's retreat in Sweden. I'm looking out at this group of women, and it was like looking at a room of models. It was crazy. I mean, I, I didn't know that was true until I was there. So one woman comes up, I mean, she, she was just scary beautiful. The depth of insecurity she felt about her body was really wreaking havoc in their marriage. And I literally, I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was almost hard for me to grasp, and I do this work. It doesn't matter what we look like. People have negative views of their body, and it's called, so it's that self-consciousness in the midst of sexuality. Um, uh, gosh, we have so many issues with weight ideas. I This is just a quick plug. I have a whole workshop on God, women, and body image. Y'all want me to come out? I'm going to do a whole workshop on that. Um, but the program that I do, because I do work with disorder eating and eating disorders, is called Health at Every Size. Great program. Just full plug. If you're looking for a practitioner that's a nutritionist to help you, don't. Pick a nutritionist that works from this model is what my recommendation if you have if you have body image issues, if you have eating disordered um, issues, choose that practitioner. And then there's a lot of different sexual disorders which we're gonna go over. And then there's all the ways society is about sex, either that they're flagrant with it and really disrespectful of God's beauty of it, or you just don't talk about it, you don't talk about it in your families worldwide. I've gotten to teach literally all over the world, and all over the world they don't talk about it in families. Meaning there are some families that do, but 90, 95% of families don't, right? It's cultural taboos, especially with gender as well. Like this is what a male is supposed to be, this is what a female is supposed to be. Um, huge. So culture has a huge piece, um, and the family you grew up in, and the society you grew up in. And there can be differences in arousal, which we're going to talk about. And maybe your spouse is a clod, just going on from there. <laughs> so we're going to do another little practice here. Remember, we're going to talk about fears and worries, right? So we're just going to massage this piece a little bit more. Go ahead and do the same thing. Pick who's going to go first. Are we going to turn? And then go ahead and move your seats if you want to do that, or face each other if you're okay with that. But I do want you as much as possible to turn those shoulders so you're as much as possible facing each other. Take each other's hands. And if you can, chairs, you can go spread eagle, husbands. Wife, tuck yourself into your knees, touch the chair. Take each other's hands. Do your best to keep your eye contact as you share. On this one, you can do all of them. Just see how far you get. We're going to do it for a couple minutes. And mind you, what this one is about, it's about what we're doing here today. When it comes to intimacy, closeness, the stuff we're talking about so far, 
Um, let's keep it at that level. We're not going to do this one on sexuality, all right? Just on intimacy overall in your marriage. One thing I worry about is, one thing I fear is, and so on. Okay, so who's going first? On your arms. Get that. You want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? And I don't want to go. But an option. Um. So going forward. Okay. One thing I fear is that I won't be able that I'll always have fear about your faithfulness. One thing that you fear is that you will always be afraid of my faithfulness towards you. Correct? Did I say that? Maybe. One thing you fear is that you will never be secure in your faithfulness to you. Is that how the phrase is? It's about your relationship, not what you're worried about at work. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. Well, now Just I don't remember the exact oh, words I said. Oh, okay. Anger, so we'll okay. <laughs> um. Oh, like this one. Just a reminder when you share, it's one to two sentences. One thing I fear is you'll ask me to leave. One thing you fear is that I will ask you to leave. It's also hard to reflect. Something I feel insecure about.
care about everything. <laughs> um, one issue, one moment. I'm sorry, I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> uh, can you think about one more minute? One thing I'm insecure about is I will never look good. I will never look good enough. One thing you feel insecure about is that you'll never look good enough. <laughs> One thing I feel guilty about is all of my hidden sin and how I'm a douchebag and how I'm a terrible human being. Do I have to reflect yes. all of <laughs> you do. It wasn't even your turn. I cheated. <laughs> One thing I feel guilty about is how much I have withheld intimacy and sex from you. One thing you feel guilty about is how you withheld intimacy from me. One thing you feel guilty about is that you. I don't actually remember. Oh, I said Cheater. Well, you cheated. straight to the face. So from the beginning, I set oh. the stage of how to start being vulnerable. Mm. This is vulnerable stuff to talk about. Remember that list of what um, the levels of intimacy are? Look at the words worry, fear, insecure, guilt, hope. You know? Yeah, this is the vulnerable one. Yeah. I think on this one, it was harder to do the reflection. Mm. Um, like Hard hearing, yeah, hearing something painful that your spouse mm-hmm. feels, mm-hmm. and then having to like to just say repeat that back. That back mm-hmm. hard. It's harder when a pain is shared, and you're just gonna just reflect it back and do nothing more. Yeah. What? Yeah. It was hard because I learned something 
new, which oh. once you're together for a while, you think that there's nothing else mm. to learn. Um, so learning something new, and then learning we actually had some of the same answers was also eye-opening. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big one, you know, the whole learning something new. Oh, isn't it just shocking and surprising that you can be married so long and still learn new things? Yeah. So uh, I was the, the one who went first, and for me, remember, the first one and the third one were pretty much the same. Mm. What I worry about is what I'm insecure about. So worry and insecure. So, so I wanted to ask you, mm. uh, how can we more effectively differentiate between what we worry about and what we feel insecure? So when I do these with couples, by the time we get to the third one, usually the guys like, I feel like I've answered the same thing three times. And actually, the third one. I'd say 50%, I'm just making this up, but uh, of the men that I work with go, that's just not a word we use very much in connection for, for men, right? That you're able to actually call it that is, is a step. I would say there is some difference. So um, they're all three different, and I don't know that answering that is what's needed, I would say actually go back and explore those words some more. Insecurity is different from fear, and insecurity is different from worry, partially because it's much more deeply personal, and maybe nobody knows. So it's a bit more vulnerable to say that third one, right? It's usually about who we are as a person, and that's a little ouchier. Worries and fears might be more relational in nature. How else? How was that for you? Yes. Um, one of the things that she brought up for what she feels guilty about is something that I had thought about amongst our lives mm. and never talked to her about. Mm. Not thinking that she doesn't think about this at all. Mm. But that's something that apparently has been mm. providing a lot of guilt mm. for her or whatever. So mm. one thing I learned with that is, you know, we're living the same lived experiences together. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm And what would it be like to allow yourself to have those conversations? Yeah. You know, this level of um, risk is it's risky to do these. And it's why people don't have these conversations. Like over and over, couples will say, we never talk like this. And so it's a little challenging. So I would say, consider doing this kind of thing more and more. Mm. Um, if you're going to read a married book, or any book together, a spiritual book together. I tell this when couples get my book and read it together. I say, don't just read it, don't just read it at different paces. Read it together, where you read a chapter and talk about it. Read a chapter and talk about it. Read a chapter and talk about it. It's the something about the talking about it. That um, really I thought she was going to say another book. We actually know this from research, by the way, but yeah, my clinical experience is the same. So intimacy is risky. Sexual intimacy is really risky. And so I want to tell you, I want to go into some of the areas that we don't talk about a lot. So one of the areas is that we also don't have these conversations about is just touch and affection. My preference for how to hold hands, for how to hug, 
for how long I like to hold hands, for where I'm okay with you touching me there. Like, I'm okay with you touching me like that in this circumstance, but not in this one. And do we have that? I worked with a couple, they were in their 70s, and we were working on some of these touch issues, and she had never shown him, 70, so 50 years married, she'd never shown him that she hated holding hands like this. But this is how she liked holding hands like this, and she just never told him for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should, and then more we just, what happens to people don't talk about it, they just pull away. Mm. And or maybe they don't even know why they don't like it. So having the discussion about it is the place to start. So touch can be mental. Um, when sex is a problem, it impacts. It impacts sensual touch, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. It impacts affectionate touch. It impacts emotional verbal intimacy. It ricochets. And then if there's issues in here, like conflict resolution, it ricochets up into all forms of intimacy, including sexuality. So touch gets very impacted on both ends. And so learning how to talk about it is important. Just a good rule of thumb overall with any form of touch, before you touch her body, touch her soul. Now, honestly, this can be both directions. Um, we, in marriages, Within our fellowship and with just within the world, we um, focus on and honor the, 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 the uniqueness of the married relationship for all the touches that can happen. The thing is, though, when touch, especially sexual touch, happens, when there's not a connection soul to soul, that touch becomes negative. What we know from research, this is so funny, uh, when you really look at the stats, <laughs> This is a blanket research statement. It doesn't apply to everybody. But one of the studies found that when men receive touch that is associated with sex, they enjoy it. When women receive touch that is associated with sex, they don't perceive it as enjoyable. Okay? Why? Well, we're going to go into that. The reason why I emphasize it is sometimes the reason why someone doesn't enjoy touch is because they feel like the only time you touch me is when you want sex. So what I often do is when I'm working, because they're working with me, I put them on, or I don't put them on it, they choose a sexual vacation. I don't mean going on a vacation to have sex. I mean a vacation from sex. They actually put like it on pause because one of them is not enjoying hand-holding and hugging and sensual touch. They can't let enjoyment in because it's so attached to this means we're going to have sex. And sex is problematic, perhaps, for them. So even a simple hand-holding becomes painful or uncomfortable or I want to avoid it. So that's what I mean by how it ricochets. So start with the connecting soul to soul what we practiced this morning, then work on that friendship part, then with touch and affection, there can be a lot of reasons why, one reason might be because you perceive the touch as only sexual, but there can be other reasons why touch is a problem. Maybe in your family background you didn't receive touch, or maybe touch was, was violating, or you experienced different violating touches. So, or from the baby, your mom told you, you went, like you didn't like touch from like infancy. So touch, 
and then they, then you become a Christian, everybody wants to hug you, you know? So when somebody has a background where touch is problematic, it can also show up in being difficult in the marriage. Um, warm, intimate gestures that are not focused on the breasts, buttocks, and genitals are kind of important. In other words, if the only time you touch your spouse is around their buttocks, and their vagina and penis, or their breasts, that warm intimate touch might have taken a hit, right? So when I'm saying touch, I'm not just meaning to those intimate parts of the body. And what about touch after sex? The cuddling and pressing, I call it the Thanksgiving feast. How's that going? <laughs> you know? um, we do know, my, the, the, the therapist I base my work on, Virginia Satir, used the term skin hunger. A lot of times people have skin hunger, even those who actually go, I don't, I don't like touch, it's because what they're pushing away is the negative things they experienced around touch, and they've not yet been able to explore what their body does like. I had a couple, um, oh, same couple, I actually asked for permission, their permission, how much can I share about your life? And they're like, go ahead. I just don't name their names. This was the couple became Christians you know, later in life, and um, he'd had pornography and an affair background. So I, we were about a year into therapy when we actually started working on the physical part of their relationship. Right? We had a lot of repair to do. So then the second year of therapy, we were working much more on their physical relationship, and then about a few months in, we're working on sensual touch, and I sent them home with an exercise where I call it the five objects. You find five objects, you're practicing sensual touch, but it's a little bit less intimate than caressing with the hands. You find five fun objects at home, and your spouse closes their eyes, and you use that, those five objects to caress their body. And they have to kind of guess what it is. Uh, so it's a fun, playful kind of exercise. So the wife had chosen, and this is a good idea, she had chosen a silk scarf, one of the objects. So she's running it over his body. So they come into session and he tells me, he, he goes, oh my goodness, I had no idea that my body had so many areas that are pleasurable. His, his sexuality had become so focused on his penis because of his pornography and all of that, that the idea that he had nerve endings on the rest of his body. So she's, she's like running the scarf and he said, my whole body shuddered. Right? Um, we often go so quick to intercourse and, and you know, genital touch that we skip all these other amazing parts of the body. And your body goes, I need that, I need that. That's the skin hunger. Mm -hmm. So pleasuring your mate's entire body is a good idea. These are the three levels that I'm sort of tapping on right now which is what I call whole skin touch. So this is holding hands, hugs, affection, <laughs> greetings, casual touch. You're walking through the house and you just kind of run your finger across their shoulders as you walk by. You know, as you're sitting in the car and the hand to the, to the leg. Um, sensual touch is the more sensitive areas of the body and the more private areas of the body. When you're out in public, and some stranger puts their hand on your thigh, you might get in a bit of an altercation, right? Yeah, no, you know, that's my thigh, right? <laughs> um, that's a more private area of the body. It's actually also, especially the inner thigh, thinner skin, it's much more sensitive. So the level two erogenous zone 
is um, the more sensitive and the more private areas, back of the knees, inner thighs, abdomens, navel, small back, buttocks, neck, palms of the hands, palms mm. of the feet, face, eyelids, temples. All of those areas get skipped with a lot of couples. They go from holding, holding hands to having sex, and all that stuff in the middle gets skipped. And yet it's one of the most important areas to explore. Level three is what we're talking in the next class. <laughs> so, you're going to talk about touch right now. I'm just going to make you talk all day long. You're going to talk about touch right now. And you're only going to talk about affectionate touch. You're not going to talk about the thighs. You're not going to talk about the neck. You're not going to talk about the more private sensual areas. You're going to talk about hand holding and hugging and maybe spooning, like that kind of touch. The touch to the arms. To the head, okay? So, we're only going to do the first one, the second one, and the third one. Yeah. Alright, just the first three. Ready? Choose who's going to go first. <coughs> Don't start yet. I'm sorry. Do you want to swap seats so you don't have to keep standing up? <laughs> to how you were going to say it because it came with like an analogy <laughs> so um okay here you go one way one way i like to be touched is not or that was funny whatever I see I what mean, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really not exactly. gently. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. One way you like to be touched is. One way I like to be touched. 
one way I like to be touched is often. Hmm. Why do you like to be touched is often? Is that a fair analogy? <laughs> a fair phrasing? Um, you are very good at how uh, verbalize this. Um, giving me security through the strength of your hugs and squeezes. Nope, that was a lot of wordiness. I don't okay, so put a pause. What I mean is like when you come in and you hug me and like I like it like you hold me there for like a few seconds and it's like you really want to be like you make me feel safe like through your embraces it's not just like a quick hug and you like you move on like you really like mm. sorry that was a whole lot of words whatever you say yeah is i don't really know how to value that <laughs> <laughs> put that into a word i know what do you know what i'm talking about i know about? i think i do one one thing you think i'm good at is giving you security through holding you. Um, you're good at everything. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did I said I don't know. Let me tell you what people generally say. What they generally say is, we've not ever had this conversation. So consider the importance. First, I tell people, talk about your background with touch. Um, in the book, The Art of Intimate Marriage, it actually goes through family of origin stuff and touch. Have that conversation first, mm. and then you come into more and more specific things on your own relationship. There's also, so speaking of, so we're doing, if you'll notice, we're doing lots of talking, right? The more I can get couples to talk openly and directly about all these different areas, the better. So how about some other kinds of communication? And you look at Song of Solomon. Look how she describes, so we're talking touch here. We're getting into the body. Look how she describes his body. She calls him handsome, lover, delights to sit in his shade, sweet to taste. She calls him radiant, ruddy, outstanding. She talks about his head, his hair, his eyes, his cheeks, his lips. She compliments his muscles, arms of gold, that his body is like polished ivory, that he has legs that are pillars of marble. And she says, she talks about his kisses, and she calls their bed verdant. So you see this just really intimate, encouraging, loving, upbuilding language about his body. Look at him. He described her as beautiful, lovely, that she's stolen his oh, heart sorry. with a glance. She's delightful. She's pleasing. He describes her eyes, hair, teeth, lips, mouth, temples, neck. Oh, breasts is in there. But look at all the other parts. <laughs> Waist. He compliments her smell that like breath like apples, and that her voice is sweet. He tells her she has graceful legs, 
and beautiful sandaled feet. You know, mm. when last time you complimented your wife's beautiful sandaled feet. I'm going to start complimenting your beautiful sandaled feet. And he uses poetic <laughs> terms. He tells her she is like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, and majestic as the stars. The point I'm doing in showing you these pieces is that when it comes to the body and all the touching you're going to do in a marital relationship around the body, how often are we complimenting our partner's bodies? You know, really consider that. Sometimes our view of the body is so impacted by media and movies, and this is what a body is supposed to look like. So you might have your own negative view of your own body, which is its own work to do. And you might also view other people's bodies, including your spouse's, negatively. And so the world could be impacting your view of the body and your spouse's body. So sometimes we have to relearn God's view of the body. Everybody close your eyes. I want you to think about the part of the body, of your body, that you you, you like the least. It's the part of your body you don't really like. Keeping your eyes closed, because this is very private, put your hand on that part of the body. What's the part of the body you don't like so much? Of your own. Now, with me, we're going to say, from Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So with me, say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now remove your hand and open your eyes. I don't know what part of your body you touched. A good chunk of people touch their fat. They don't like their fat and their fat rolls. That's where I put mine, right here. I don't like my fat rolls. Wherever you did, think about that. Wherever you put your hand. Okay, wait a minute. Like there's skin underneath this hand. Skin is amazing. It's the like the things skin does. And then wait, there's a liver and kidneys and like the God said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we go, oh, but, because we don't like the but or where our hand is. That's not how God views it. So sometimes there's a relearning about the body that needs to happen so that then you can, if you ever um, get... Well, she has passed, but if you ever get to listen to or read Maya Angelou's poetry on the body, she does one called um, Phenomenal Woman, and she talks about, you know, her the length of her arms and the st- and the the span of her hips and the stride in her step, like it's just so honoring of the body. I actually do that work with people that I um, see, and we do have to do a relearning about the body personally and between us um, as married couples. A hugely important part of increasing our intimacy. And then I'm going to end this time with this. Um, sensual touch. So this is the erogenous zone too. So we've gone to whole body touch. We've gone to the body overall and how we talk about the body. And then, what about all these touches to these special areas, right? Like I said, we go from holding hands, kiss hello and goodbye, we hug and we have sex. Not much in between, right? Why? Why do we skip sensual touch, all those intimate areas? Honestly, there's often a rush to reach orgasm. 
due to either will I lose my erection or my will I have premature ejaculation or I don't want to have sex, so let's get it over as quickly as possible. So the rush to getting things done, um, wanting to just get it over with, or we're just getting these repetitive routines. <laughs> the very first marriage retreat I went to, the the wife, <laughs> it was a, um, an elder couple in our church, talked about the hand. You know, they go to bed and the lights are off and the hand. <laughs> I was like, okay, I was kind of newly married, so I didn't quite know what she meant. Um, but we get in these repetitive sexual routines that aren't that aren't special, right? This is the before you touch their body, touch their soul. Um, and there might be various reasons why you're not really enjoying your spouse's touch, either because their hands are rough and they need lotions or they need oils. You know, some people's hands are rough. Um, or because it's repetitive, <laughs> one couple, the wife is like, whenever, I just, ugh, I don't even want him to touch me because he puts his hand, his fingers on my shoulder and goes like this over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's like it's going to wear a circle on <laughs> my shoulder. <laughs> so it kind of touches. Um, or somebody's touching, but they're not really there. Somewhere else. Uh, yeah. Right? Or honestly, life's just so full and busy and let's just get to sex and be done and go do the zillion things we need to do, right? And if you really spend time doing lots of pre, you know, fun touch, then sex takes so long. And yet, without all kinds of lovely touches that are a part of everything and not just going straight to the genitals, sexuality is hugely impacted. We actually know from research that when people don't touch, this is my research, couples who engage in sensual foreplay, the level of overall enjoyment of sex increases dramatically, where the focus of enjoyment is no longer just the orgasm, but the arousing pleasure of giving and receiving increasingly intimate touches. So with that thought, we're going on a break. <laughs> Come on, you guys can uh, give her a better hand.